Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Buddhang Dhammang Sanghang Namasami Those of you who might be uh, wondering um, that little solo that happens before the uh, Dhamma talk. It's not just a sort of random ecstatic utterance by <laughs> various Pali-speaking members of the group. But, uh, <laughs> it's uh, a um, uh, part of uh, Buddhist custom is that uh, the teachings are only ever given on on request, so that uh, we have strict rules about not proselytizing. We can't go and knock on people's doors or go up to people on the street and, and uh, tell them how wonderful Buddhism is. Uh, but um, there has to be a uh, like an interest expressed in the in the audience first, and then the, the teaching is is drawn forth from that. And so this. Um, this tradition began right at the very beginning of the whole thing, um, just after the Buddha's enlightenment. And uh, as many of you probably know, the Buddha's first inclination was uh, on reflecting upon the the uh, insight that he had uh, awoken to, his realization of the, the fundamental nature of of truth. His first thought was, no way. No one's ever going to believe this. <laughs> How am I ever going to explain this? There's no point even trying. And so his first inclination was to um, just uh, go off and be a hermit and not bother to try to, to teach anybody anything. And then, um, as the story goes, uh, this Brahma god, uh, Sahampati, heard uh, this thought going through the Buddha's mind. Uh, and... Uh, had this powerful uh, sense of urgency arising and then beamed down from the Brahma world and appeared in front of the Buddha and then uttered these uh, the words that are contained in that little uh, chant saying um, uh, the, uh, there are indeed many beings who are um, lost and confused and who can't understand the teaching, but there are a few with only a little bit of dust in their eyes uh, who will be able to understand the teaching if you if you uh, take the trouble to express it. And so then the Buddha uh, cast his, uh, his vision around the world uh, using his all-seeing eye and realized, well, you know, somebody's right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So then he gave up his idea of being a hermit, and uh, we are the inheritors of that um, that initiative that uh, the Brahma Sahampati uh, launched all, all those uh, years, two and a half millennia ago. 
and then the Buddha's response for 45 years to to tread around the uh, the Ganges Valley, um, and then speaking to whomsoever uh, was interested or invited him to to teach. So uh, up until now, that uh, uh, rather than just presuming that um, you want to hear a Dhamma talk, even though it's there on the schedule, <laughs> we still uh, follow this custom. And in uh, in our monasteries, uh, every every uh, even though everybody knows on a Saturday evening there's a Dhamma talk on the lunar quarters, every new moon, full moon, and the two half moons, there's a Again, there's a Dhamma talk scheduled, but at the beginning of those evenings, there's a similar request. So it echoes that same uh, same spirit that the the teaching needs to be really there needs to be an eagerness, a readiness, an interest to hear and to listen and to reflect in the group, uh, not just a presumption on the on the behalf of um, an individual that I've got something wonderful to say and you really really need to hear it, even though that might be true. Um, it's uh, if no, if there's no interest uh, and no one is um, ready to hear the teachings, then it's better to keep quiet. Even if uh, you know you have wonderful things that you could say, if uh, if you know, a conversation or a dialogue takes takes two, <laughs> and uh, the Buddhist teachings are, are they're teachings; they're not just proclamations. So that. Uh, if the interest isn't there, then there's no point saying anything. Better to go off and do the hermit thing. But I, anyway, I do detect there's an interest and an expectation, and this is all the preamble. So um, I was uh, reflecting a little bit on uh, uh, Achan Punadhamma's um, wonderful uh, guided meditation this afternoon, uh, which is... Uh, Interestingly enough, pretty much um, spelled out exactly as it is in the, uh, the Buddha's shorter discourse on, on emptiness, um, the Chula Sunyata Sutta. And, uh, and as he was describing it, and, and he, he made the point, and also, uh, as I recall in the Dhamma talk, about uh, moving towards simplicity, and that uh, this is a, an important principle, uh, moving from complexity uh, towards simplicity, and so we can uh, we can look at our lives just as just as that meditation began with um, having our eyes open, looking around this hall, and there's all these different people and different plants and objects and uh, different colored clothing and different personalities and etc. etc. All this diversity and multi- multiplicity, complexity, and it seems as though we we start from that and you know, we start from this place of of complexity, and when we look at our lives, we think we got so many things going on, and we got there's our job and our and our family, and then our past and our future, and our um, plans and our ideas and our hopes and our regrets and our fears and our nostalgia and all of the things that we you know, have got qualified for and want to get qualified for, and with webs of relationship in our Dharma community and our work world and our family life. And uh, and then there's the you know, political realm and social concerns and the environment and global warming. England is just about to complete its warmest April since they started keeping records in the 17th century. 
even Eng- even grey old England is warming up. So there are many, many things to be concerned about, things going on. We, we seem to have lives of such incredible complexity and so many things happening, so many demands on our time. And so probably a reason why many, many people have come to this retreat, even just hearing me talking about this, you can feel like, oh, I was trying to forget all of that, you know. Leave it all behind because we feel a sense of pressure, being pressurized by life. So we think, well, I want to be. I need to be more simple. That moving towards simplicity—that's great. But um, what the, uh, the Buddha's teachings also point to, uh, very um, helpfully and maybe uh, in, uh, curiously, is that actually um, we started out with simplicity, and uh, it's not that we're beginning with with the complex and the convoluted and the pressurized. This is actually a result. <laughs> This is an effect. Um, and so that uh, then uh, uh, it's interesting and, and useful to, to reflect, well, if this is an effect, what caused this? You know, how did I get to this feeling of being me pressurized by the world, me under so much uh, stress or me with so many demands on my time and my life and so many things I have to think about and take care of and be responsible for and concern myself with. Well, one of the, uh, the, the finest and most useful uh, meditation teachings that uh, is contained in the Pali scriptures, the Theravada Buddhist teachings, is a uh, discourse in the middle-length uh, teachings, the Majjhima Nikaya. And it's called the uh, Madhupindika Sutta, or the variously translated as the honey ball or the sweet morsel. Sounds interesting already, doesn't it? (laughs) Notice what not eating in the evening does for your (laughs) food references suddenly. (laughs) Food? What? What? Food? (laughs) Suddenly we wake up. Not that anyone was drifting off. Um... So the Madhupindika Sutta, and it, it gathers that name because it was uh, Ananda, um, said, at the end of the discourse, Ananda says, this is incredible, this is amazing, this is a wonderful teaching, this is like a, a, like a, a ball of nectar, this is like a sweet morsel, this is like a kind of uh, a beautiful pearl of honey. What should we call this discourse, uh, O oh Lord? He said, call it the sweet morsel. <laughs> Madhu is honey, and Pindika means like a ball or a lump. Like when we go on arms round, that's pindabata. The bata is the bowl, and the pinda is the lump of food. So pindabata, the lump in the bowl. <laughs> so madhu pindika is the little ball of honey, or the lump of honey. We call it, also call it honey lump, the honey lump sutta. So uh, what makes it so sweet? What, what makes this particularly delectable, this teaching? Well, it's uh, a teaching that the, the Buddha gives in brief and then is actually spelled out by uh, Mahakachana. But uh, to, to cut a long story short, what it describes, um, it starts off with the Buddha sitting meditating in the forest and then this character, a, uh, um, a too-clever-by-half young Brahmin called Dandapani, which means stick in hand, a sort of swaggering young dude comes sauntering through the forest and uh, and uh, in india uh, religious debates um 
were rather like sort of fashion statements. You know, you sort of you try and outdress each other or look good or try and impress each other. Not, so nowadays it's by the kind of how small your cell phone is or... Which, uh, which, uh, the, you know, the, uh, uh, which kind of iPod you carry. Not if you have an iPod, but which particular, just how sophisticated is your iPod. In those days, religious debate had the same kind of cachet, so that you would, uh, you would impress each other with how smart you were with your religious philosophies. And so um, this uh, young dude, uh, Dandapani, comes swaggering through the forest and sees the Buddha sitting at the bottom of the foot of a tree. So he comes up to the Buddha <coughs> and uh, the Buddha opens his eyes and says, yes, can I help you? And so then Dandapani says, so, oh ascetic, samana, so what kind of, uh, what is your philosophy? What do you teach? What kind of um, spiritual path do you practice? And, uh, and basically not interested in the slightest in what the Buddha actually practices or teaches but looking for a fight, you know, so looking for a contest and to show how smart and clever and uh, how his, uh, he's got the flashier iPod. <laughs> now let's see your stuff. What do you got? You know? In the monastery, it's what kind of leather man you've got. <laughs> <laughs> it's the current, the, the current uh, monastic competitive... Uh, Sink for competitive urges. It's a guy thing, you know. I'm sure. I'm sure the nuns have their own variety. People don't know what a leather man is. <laughs> it's a, a a gadget that can do everything. It's got pliers and screwdrivers and scissors. And I won't produce mine. Just <laughs> but, uh, Anyway, going back to the story. So Dandapani says, so what do you teach? You know, what's your philosophy? What is it that you, um, you proclaim? What kind of teaching do you proclaim? Um, and uh, the, uh, the Buddha uh, basically says, um, I teach uh, su- uh, such a path of practice that um, uh, avows non-contention with uh, all things. Not to contend against anyone or anything. <clears throat> so then it said, Dandapani, with that opening line, then murmured and muttered, puckered his brow into three furrows, and, uh, and uh, stomped off with nothing further to say, waving his stick. <laughs> so the Buddha, uh, simply with that, that reflection, I teach non-contention. Yeah, basically, you want to fight? I'm not going to fight. No contest. <laughs> you want you want a challenge? You want to, to show off? Fine, but I'm not going to play. I teach non-contention, non-conflict. So then, um, when he uh, got back to the monastery and uh, and the um, he told uh, some people about this this exchange. Um, and uh, then he was asked to expand expound a bit about about non conflict or how how can we um, develop that quality of non contention and uh, so then uh, he uh, he briefly explains it and then they they uh, and then uh, leaves the, the 
the monks to their um, pondering of, what, of his short statement, and then they go and ask Mahakachana to go and, and explain, uh, spell it out uh, for them. To, what did the Buddha exactly mean? So, so I'm just sort of reducing the whole story a little bit here. So then Mahakachana spells out how the perceptual process works and how conflict arises. Said, well, first of all, it starts off with sense contact. We have eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, mind, and so we we uh, uh, have things contact the senses. We see something. It's like you know the Buddha saw Dandapani approaching him. We see something. We hear something. So with a sense contact, passa, then that um, we. Uh, that which we uh, that which contacts the senses, then we perceive that, or sanya arises from that. That conditions sanya. A sanya is related to the English word sign, so it means like the way that we name something. It's just a simple uh, naming of an experience. So we, uh, without any particular kind of judgment at all, but we we would say you know, black or brown or yeah, microphone metal. It's just the, the basic naming of a sense object or sound. So we, there's a contact and uh, you know, a, uh, an initial kind of impression. Oh, there's something going on there. You know, we, the attention is drawn to it. We, we feel the presence of something as being um, pleasant or painful or neutral. And we name it. Uh, this is you know, black. It's got a neutral object. Uh, sound. Yeah, uh, vocal object. So as a uh, going from contact and feeling, then naming sanya, and then vitaka or uh, the the thinking mind then steps in, and then says, "Yeah, that's a bell. That's that's a, uh, a Japanese bell. Or, uh, this is uh, I'm hearing the sound of a dhamma talk." Uh, so it's the um, what we name then. We, uh, we create a conceptual thought, a conceptual map. And then we, uh, in that conceptualizing, in the vitaka, then we place that experience in uh, our sort of general range of, of memory and ideas. So, so far, it's all pretty simple. Contact, feeling, naming, thinking. So then, um, the and then the the... the the thinking can be you know, uh, tied up with, uh, oh, that's beautiful, or I don't like that, or that's, that's interesting, or what does that mean? Um, I've got one of those. <laughs> so the basic, simple uh, conceptualizing about a particular object. Oh, here comes a, here comes a cocky Brahmin <laughs> looking for a fight. <laughs> then uh, what we think about uh, what uh, what arises in our in our um, in the thinking mind then gives rise to what is called papancha. And there's no perfect single English word for papancha. Um, the the best phrase that, that I'm I know of for this is uh, conceptual proliferation. It sounds a little bit clinical because and actually you know, the word papancha really carries a bit more of a punch, <laughs> pun intended. Do it. It's a bit sort of a richer and uh, more um, e- emotive term. Uh, mental prolixity is another one. Uh, it's like the, the the mind starts to get really busy 
gets carried away with the with the thought. So it's not just Japanese bell, dhamma talk going on, or what's that feeling in my knee? But then uh, that's the vitaka element. And then the papancha is my friend had surgery last week. She had a terrible time. I wonder if it's the same thing that she got. She went. She thought it was just a little sort of meniscus thing that was going to be done by a little microsurgery, and there was this whole horror story. And then the insurance company weren't going to pay up, and and now she's worried about her job. Gone grief. Now, what what insurance have I got? Did I pay my last instalment? Well, I'm up to the limit on my last card to pay for this retreat. Well, actually, no, I haven't paid for it yet. That's good. So I'm not up to the limit there. But yeah. But they were going to withdraw that card anyway. But which cards have I got that are still legit? Maybe I should get another one. Maybe, where's the phone so I can find out if there's any other... This is Papancha. Have any of you ever had that kind of experience? Are any of you having that experience right now? How did he read my mind? Well, it's, uh, you'll, be, uh, not, you'll probably not be astonished to hear this is, this is a pretty universal human experience. And uh, so this is where you know, the trouble really starts to, to, to begin. Yeah, we, get, we get so carried away. What starts off as a, like a simple you know, contact, feeling, perception, thinking, then whoo, you know, like an exponential, one of those exponential graphs, kind of <laughs> y equals x to the fourth. Whoosh, <laughs> Off it goes, uh, zooming skywards, and uh, the mind gets carried away uh, rapidly, and and we lose contact with the world. Uh, you know how many times have uh, have we been? Maybe even on this retreat, you've noticed that uh, you know, the mind sort of picking up some some you know, tiny little event. Someone, yeah, you, know, meet, you meet somebody in the doorway, and they've got a sort of nasty look on their face. And they say, what does she mean by that? She's looking at me like that again. It's the second time she's done that. <laughs> Who is this person? What's she got against me anyway? <laughs> this is always happening to me on retreat. Well, I'm not going to stand for it. I'm going I'm to write her a note. No, what's her name? <laughs> now, was she, a, was she a Susan or was she a Sarah? No, she was Rebecca. No, no, Rachel. Well, who? Whatever. I'll find out. I'm gonna, I've got to talk to the manager. I'll find out what her name is. I'm going to write her a note, and I'm, I'm really. Then you spend the whole, you know, the whole next half hour writing, composing this note to this, uh, you know, to set this person straight that they can't treat you in this abusive way. <laughs> yeah, and then. Uh, Then at the end of the next sitting, you you know you, you notice that they're 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 striding with the same urgency as they were, you know, with that same look on their face when when you met them in the doorway. But they're you know, but uh, you realize they're actually on their way to the bathroom, <laughs> and they weren't. It was nothing to do with you at all. It was just some kind of bathroom emergency, <laughs> and uh, you weren't in the plot at all, apart from somebody who happened to be in the doorway while there was a. <sighs> got to get to the bathroom moment. It was all just imagined. You know, the whole mind just creates these stories and uh, gets lost in them. 
Now you might you might think this is a modern problem. It's like, wow, you know, this is you know, it's because of the it's such busy lives and having us such so we're so distractible and we got so many kind of stimuli in this and we are sort of multitasking and multi stimulated all the time. You can't even just watch a TV now. You've got like TV with several different selections going at the same time and you've got the iPod going and a cell phone here and and it's just you know, it's all it's just so much happening all at once. Actually, um, on my way here to to Massachusetts, uh, as I was passing through San Francisco, um, as a, a, a sort of recent example of multitasking, there was a guy uh, circling um, at a busy intersection in the Mission District uh, on a on a bicycle, on a cell phone, With uh, and he had his sh- he had a sh- his shirt. Um, he was got wearing his shirt as a hat, and he had his shirt down over one eye, so he could only see through one eye. <laughs> and so I'm not kidding. He was circling on a push bike in the middle of a, a four way intersection in the Mission District, 24th and Mission, uh, Mission. big intersection. He could only see through one eye, chatting away on his cell phone, happy as happy as can be. So it's the multitasking generation problem. I mean, why should we even think about doing that? We should do one thing at a time. Back in the time of the Buddha, it was all different. You know, they never had these problems then. That's a cue for a story. <laughs> so, um, as a, one of the illustrations of this out of the scriptures is the story of a a, a novice, a teenage novice, and. Uh, his uncle was a, an elder, an elder monk, and um, so the the novice in the in those days before electric fans, then it was one of the jobs that the novice had was when the the the, um, the weather was hot or if there was lots of mosquitoes about, then say uh, Ajahn Puna was a novice and I'm giving the Dhamma talk. His job would be to to hold the fan, <laughs> and so I'm giving the Dhamma talk, and he's fanning away, keeping the mosquitoes off. Or keeping the keeping the, the teacher with you can stop that. <laughs> keeping the teacher cool, you know, while because uh, you haven't you know just to to, um, uh, to help the elder, you know, not get not get too hot and uh, uh, to be a, a kind assistance. So that was a novice's job. So anyway, this novice was fanning his uncle while his uncle was giving a dhamma talk, and so the. Uh, the story describes how the novice is fanning away, and the the, uh, the uncle's dhamma talk is kind of a uh, slow, not, not incredibly uh, gripping dhamma teaching. It's the sort of thing he's heard because he's been around his uncle for quite a few years, uh, so he's heard it all before. So he's he starts to drift off as he's fanning away. And he's thinking, "Well, I've been a novice now for like must be four or five years. I started when I was like about." 13. So, you know, I'm 18 now, 19, and I think I've been here long enough. And, you know, the monastic life, monastic life really isn't for me. So I'll kind of, maybe I'll just kind of hang in till the end of the rains retreat, the end of the three months, and then, then I'll kind of cash in my chips and go back to the village. And yeah, that's a decent length of time. And, and um, you know, that's, yeah, that's, uh, uh, you know, it's good. And I've learned a lot of things, and I can know how to meditate, and I've, I know how to behave properly, and go back to the village. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, well, that'd be nice. Yeah, actually, I'm really looking forward to that now. And yeah, or oh, there was that girl they were trying to get me engaged to. 
before I came here, right? I mean, we were very young then, but yeah, well, she'd be 18 now. Wow, yeah. Savitri, that's right. Wow, she was really nice. Well, she was really nice when she was 13. Oh, wow, 18, yeah. So, yeah, maybe I'll go back and they'll so renew the engagement. Yeah, that'd be great. Then we could get married. Anyway, yeah, that'd be great. Okay, they kind of make a bit of fuss about the, the wedding, but, you know, once all that's out, that'd be great. We can settle down and kind of get, use that bit of land that they were, and parents were talking about giving me on the edge of the village. Yeah, that'd be great. Then we can plant crops and then... And then, you know, and raise goats, you know, get a few get a few goats from the parents and then have a little herd of goats, and that'd be great, yeah. And then, well, then we could start a family, and then, that's kind of difficult, though, because, yeah, well, she's from the other village, really, and, uh, well, you know, they always want to go back and give birth to their children in their parents' house, so, yeah, that's always a bit of a difficult thing. I hear, you know, bad stories about that. Yeah, that's tough, isn't it? Yeah. So... <laughs> Well, we, you know, because she, when she's not too far along in the pregnancy, then we'd we have to get out on the road and, you know, and then, well, I'd better bring the goats with us because, you know, it's really good to have the goats, you know, kind of food supply. They've always got milk with them. And then, you know, it's a bit of a journey to get to her village. And, but we still have the goat milk as we went along. So that would make, wouldn't have to worry too much about money for the journey. But, you know, those goats, they, oh, they're really mischievous, aren't they? They kind of run away and... And, uh, God, they're hell to keep control of when you're on the road. Yeah, you've got to t- find a place to tie them up. And, and then, you know, they're always kind of running off here and running off there. And, yeah, this, like, they're, you know, they, they kind of jump around and then off into the ditch. And then, then you have to kind of beat them like this to kind of get them back on the road. And then, hey, hey, what, what? This, you're beating me with a fan. <laughs> what are you thinking of? <laughs> Sorry, Uncle. (laughs) So even though we have we're in the era of multitasking and and, um, uh, cell phones and iPods and and all of that, uh, basically we haven't changed very much. We get totally carried away our own little little universes, our own dream worlds. And we get lost, and then uh, the papancha leads to what is called in Pali papancha sanya sankar, which is the um, the multiplicity of uh, feelings and perceptions that beset the heart. Papancha sanya sankar, and that's how we end up feeling me oppressed by the world. That's the papancha sanya sankar. That uh, on that the, at the end of that chain of of causation from what was initially totally simple, just feeling, perceiving. Started off totally simple, and then we end up in this me pressurized by the world and all the stuff I have to do and all the information I have to process in a day, all the things I'm responsible for, the pressure, the pressure. And so, and you, and yeah, part of our mind can say, yeah, but it is different. You know, they've they've done they've done tests. You know that it's said that that we have to process you know, 18,000 times as much information in a single day than someone would have had to do in a similar situation 100 years ago. It is worse. <laughs> well, uh, yes and no, I'd say. Um, because the, the, one of the great blessings, or the, the sweetness, um, the, the, the kind of sweetness of the morsel, 
is that um, regardless of, of the pressure and the, the multiplicity of things uh, that we experience, it all really comes from the same place. And that the more that we meditate, the more we, we really develop the faculties of, of focusing the mind, you know, paying attention to the present moment. Uh, we learn to not be confused by thoughts and feelings, emotions. Then the more simple it remains. So we we kind of find ourselves out in the, the realm of pressure, and uh, uh, and so that we uh, we feel the need to to get to some sort of simplicity. But the fact is that it's actually it's actually simple right now. It's always perfectly simple. But the habit, the 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 rut is so deep, whereby we go from the contact of the feeling to the the perception the the thinking the papancha conceptual proliferation and then the uh, the whole bewildering array of uh, pressurizing uh, feelings the rut is so deep and kind of sloping <laughs> we we kind of fall into it and slide down you know without a uh, before a blink has passed so we we don't realize that there's a choice in every moment but the more we develop this kind of practice, the more mindfulness we develop, then the more we're uh, able to make those choices. So rather than just uh, at, the, at the moment of you know, contact, then suddenly we're you know, out in the Papancha Sankara minefield, we, uh, we slowly uh, kind of fill the rut in, if you like, <laughs> and they catch the process earlier and earlier on. And so... Uh, part of the blessings of a, an environment like this on a retreat is that we, we get to see how that process works. We can see, we hear a sound. And then we start, we see the mind going off and starting to proliferate about it. And then we, oh no, what happened there? Now, I'm already thinking, who's that guy who drives past honking his horn? So I've made a story. Ajahn Amro mentioned that. I didn't notice it before. Now I notice it. Who is that guy? <laughs> Why does he do that? Okay, now where did that begin? I heard the sound. There was a sense contact, there was a hearing, it was a, a, a raucous noise. So I, 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 enabled, I labeled it car horn. Then there was a the thought, it's that guy who keeps honking his horn. Then the papancha began. Okay, that's how it began. It was just a sound then there was a feeling, then there was a naming, thinking. Now, here I am, wanting to contact the local police, to <laughs> get out on the road and get a photograph of the number plate. Punish that villain. Yeah. That's how I got to that point. Aha! So in a benign and simple situation like this, we can get used to, to how those, those processes work. And the more we are able to get used to it, the more we can track it. Then the, we find that earlier and earlier on, we can uh, snack, we can catch it, we can notice what's going on. And we can, yeah, first of all, witness those habits, and then uh, the more they're witnessed, the more they're, they're known and watched, and the, the less power they have to kind of run away uh, under their own steam. Ignorance, not seeing clearly, is the key element to getting lost and alienated and pressurized in the world. The more wisdom and awareness there is, then the harder it is to get lost. It's a very simple relationship.
So this is a really useful exercise to do. Whenever you do find yourself uh, caught up or getting lost in, in trains of thought, to to make that effort to trace it back, to go uh, to uh, follow it back to its source, and then as we are, are developing the meditation, sitting and walking and moving around, being here, just uh, seeing the habits of how quickly the mind lurches into making presumptions or making judgments, and then as as you see the mind doing that, say wait, well, wait a minute, it's just the sight of a face in a doorway. It's just someone smiling at me. That was all. I saw a face, there was a smile. It felt good. It doesn't mean to say that this is the one true love who I've been waiting for all my life. It means there's a guy in the doorway. There are friendly people. He's a Buddhist. They smile. (laughs) This may be the one true love I've been waiting for all my life, or not. But what I know is there was a face in the doorway, there was a smile. That's it. Being smiled at feels good. Pleasant feeling. (laughs) How spacious, how simple. Suddenly there's a lot more room in life. Another way uh, also of of working with the same, uh, similar kind of process are the chain of causation that the Buddha uh, talked about that's, that's related um, is uh, uh, very similar in talking about how we uh, end up with a feeling of, of alienation or dukkha, suffering. And this is a slightly different uh, pattern that is described and then known as dependent origination, the cycle of dependent origination. Uh, it sounds a little bit grandiose. Some of you are very familiar with this, some of you not. But what it's describing is how we get addicted to things, how we get caught up in the same old cycles of behavior, thinking, around and around and around. You know, we get caught into habit patterns. So in, in Buddhist psychology, this is called the cycle of becoming or the bhava chakra. Um, in the more modern day parlance, you call it a cycle of addiction, but it's the same thing. And uh, how we keep making the same mistakes over and over and over again. So similarly, it's, it, it uh, starts off. Well, you can start in different places, but probably the easiest place to, to start off talking about it is again in the realm of contact. So contact, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. Um, contact gives rise to a feeling, pleasant, painful, neutral feeling. Very simple. Because we have the six senses, as contact, contact gives rise to feeling. So feeling is very, very simple, isn't it? I like, I don't like, or neutral. Then uh, there's um, uh, a bridge that's crossed, if you like. Because if we perceive something that we like, something that is uh, attractive, then then going from pleasant, oh, that's nice, I like that, it trans- it, we cross the bridge to I want, or if it's something that we dislike, it's like I want to get rid of, I hate. So this is called craving. So uh, feeling, the feeling of like or dislike, this is very, this is very neutral and spacious quality. 
there's no um, uh, nat- there's no innate you know, constriction or cramping or limitation of the heart in, in the realm of feeling. And as I was saying earlier today about a painful feeling, even with very uncomfortable feelings, you can be utterly equanimous, completely at peace with painful feelings. Similarly, with very blissful and beautiful feelings, we can have the most beautiful, delightful feelings and not get intoxicated with them without getting drunk on them. We can appreciate them and not get lost in them. There can be great peace, even with a very, very ultra-pleasant feelings. But the bridge is crossed you know, as we, we sort of lose our mindfulness or lose clarity. And then if it's something beautiful and, and, and uh, likable, then I want. Craving arises. And then craving leads to, to clinging. Like, not only do I want, i got to have. <laughs> so we, we, uh, um, we commit ourselves to going after that, that particular thing, that particular object, that desire. We decide to follow that desire. Uh, uh, and this is what we call becoming, bhava in uh, Buddhist terminology. Becoming, like you decided that those smells from the kitchen are just too... Attractive. I know we're on eight precepts, but the staff, I guess, are having dinner, and that smells really good. And maybe they won't know I'm a yogi. I could kind of be pretend I'm actually a staff member, just sort of happening to drift through, and <laughs> it does smell really good. And that, well, I'm, I'm really am hungry. I'm kind of feeling a little dizzy. <laughs> I'm sure I ought to have something. This craving leads to clinging. Clinging leads to. And becoming is, right, I'm going for it. So then, um, so then becoming is that, that the, the decisive moment where you stride into the kitchen and then the cook turns around and says, oh, hello, could you taste this for me? <sighs> so becoming, uh, this is the, the moment of thrill. In fact, this is what I like to point, uh, point out. This is, even uh, from the time of the Buddha, he pointed out this was the, the kind of, strongest um, moment of delusion or the kind of uh, the, the high point of delusion in the, the cycle and uh, uh, even when you and nowadays with, with uh, lots of laboratory testing they find this is exactly the same thing that so this is the the moment of um, what they call maximum dopamine release in the brain the, the pleasure center of the brain there's this little patch of the brain called the lateral tegmentum and when you get really excited about something and you're just about to, you know you're going to get what you want, then the lateral tegmentum gets really, really busy and, put, and sprays out huge amounts of dopamine. And when the dopamine hits the pleasure center of the brain, you are really, really happy. That's what the, the whole kind of pursuit of pleasure is about. Dopamine. <laughs> and I, I don't know whether the dope of dopamine is deliberate, but... <laughs> Whether it means you're a dope or you're being deluded by the dope. But uh, that's what happens. And then the pleasure center of the brain says, yes, this is so good. I love it. That's the, I love it. That's actually just chemicals going off in the brain. <gasps> what? How could you say that? These are my obsessions you're talking about. You can't be so glib. Bloody English guy coming in, <laughs> treading all over my my precious obsessions. But yeah, that's that's the the chemistry of it. That's how we feel pleasure. Um, 
is that the dopamine gets gets released, hits its receptors, and zzz, happy, happy, happy. That's the moment of maximum thrill comes just before we get what we want. So you know you're going to get it, but you haven't quite got it yet. And they've done many, many tests to to to, to um, register this. But it's when you you the you've already kind of handed over your credit card and you're just about to get <laughs> the new thing. Yeah, your new camera or your new car or your new computer. Yes. Yeah. Your new relationship. Well not with a credit card, but <laughs> you know. When you the the person has said, you know, yes to your invitation. Or you've kind of gone to the new new monastery. <laughs> Finally got you know, ordination at last. Yes. Hooray! I'm a monk at last. But then, as people know, you know the, the 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 wedding is only one bit, and the marriage is the other. And then, or buying acquiring the new computer is one thing, and then all the glitches you have to live with uh, as the next bit, and then you have to deal with the bill <laughs> that needs to be paid. And so then, the maximum thrill and the, the the fulfillment is just before you get what you want. Then you know you're gonna, and then the, the, the cook gives you the soup, and you think, "Oh, this is great!" So you then. Sitting there with your cup full of soup and think, oh, right, this is great. Then Taranir walks into the kitchen. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> oh! <laughs> this is called Soka Parideva Dukkha Domanasu Payasa. We chanted this the last couple of mornings. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair are dukkha. You don't necessarily feel all of them when she walks in. Oh, God, caught in the act. She, she knows. Yeah, and so, I mean, we can insert any one of our, our own particular scenarios in here, but it's that feeling. It's like the, the result of what we've just committed ourselves to. And it can be something totally innocent. But just having to live through the karma. Okay, you acquire a new uh, camera or a laptop or a, you know, a car or <clears throat> just a simple you know, object. And then you have to live with it. Yeah, you know all of the 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 way you inflated how marvelous it was going to be when you had it. Then you have to deal with all of the the, um, the complications of owning it and protecting it, and then people being jealous of you. Oh, you got one of those, have you? Oh, very nice. Oh, well, it's all right for some. You know, not everyone can afford one of those. <laughs> then you realize this beautiful new thing that you have is is like uh, is a, uh, a, a a painful reminder for for somebody else of how poor they are. And it's displaying your own your wealth or how you've got money to throw around. Oh, didn't realize I was going to do that. Didn't realize I was going to be causing others harm by me relishing this thing or following this thing. Oh, look at that. So any one of the 10,000, hundreds of thousands of different ways, um, when we bought into a condition, even in our own body, you know, when we're, we kind of... It might be young and strong and vigorous. And, yeah, oh, great. I don't know what this kind of meditations on the body are about. I mean, it's, it's fine. It's old age, sickness and death. Well, yeah, okay, I can think about that. But, you know, it's not that big of a deal. When you're 25, it's not. <laughs> but uh, as the years tick by and then, oh, this, this bit doesn't work and that bit doesn't work. I can't remember what that one used to do. Yeah. <laughs> I stopped the map for so long. 
Yeah. It all uh, starts to get more and more more real. You know, this body that seemed to be so, you know, everything works and does what you want it to, and it's all painless and and, and cheerful. And then, then uh, we invest in it and we identify with it. And then, as it ages and stops working and starts to get sort of saggy and wrinkly and bits don't work anymore and drop off <laughs> in various ways, you know, then oh, 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 the, the the degree to which we've invested in it and identified with it is exactly the degree to which we'll be miserable. As it's like, gee. Who's that guy looking out of the mirror at me in the morning? This haggard old rabbi. Oh, it's me. (laughs) So, it's not kind of saying there's anything wrong or bad about that, but just that's what we live through. We we experience the downside, not only with the spring and the arising, the the kind of upswing, the... the, the, um, bright part of the cycle, we get the, the, the dark and painful and, and degenerating part of the cycle too. You can't just get one, one side of the coin. Yeah, if you get the coin, you get both. It's the way nature works. So if you're really clever, you might think you can just get the upswing and not be there for the downswing. <laughs> just hang onto the wheel as it's, as it's uh, swinging upwards and then you hop off and it gets to the top. <laughs> Well, that takes some pretty clever maneuvering. And uh, we can do that some of the time, but we, it's impossible for us to do it all of the time. So what happens when we, we are then dealing with uh, the downside, when the relationship goes sour, when you're bored with the monastery, thinking about Savitri and the other, <laughs> in the next village and <laughs> planning your goat herd and you know, your, your, your flock of goats and... Uh, it's all kind of gone sour and and uncomfortable and difficult and yeah yeah laptops malfunctioning and your yeah your earpieces don't work and your beloved is saying that goddamn awful joke again. Doesn't he know I've heard that eight thousand five hundred forty three times? <laughs> and those charming endearing little quirks have become utterly infuriating. <laughs> Unbearable. That's Sokapari Deva Dukkha Domanasa Upayasa. And so, if we're wise, then we know. Oh, look! This is the natural. Uh, this is the natural consequence. I bought into that yeah, youth and beauty, and now here's you know, aging and degeneration. So I'm, uh, I'm still invested in the same company. You know, it was all went with a package. So that's what I invested in before. Now this is what it's like. Because of A, therefore B. Aha. Uh-huh. No big surprise. If we're wise, we see that, and then that causes us to, to then not be so entangled, to, to, to let go and detach. If we're unwise, then we, we just get caught in that, that disappointment. Ah, oh, damn, well, maybe I just didn't get a, a good enough, I need, I need the better, the, the new iPod that's just coming out, or the... Yeah, the the new camera or the the new partner, the new degree course. I mean, how many of you have just gone back to to to, to college again? <laughs> well, I really need, I'm not being accusatory. I'm just kind of curious, you know. Like this is, 
well, I think I'd, it'd be interesting to do another degree course, or yeah, or move town, or change my hair, or go into the monastery, yeah. And uh, so sometimes these moves and changes that we make, they can seem reasonable or worthwhile or totally innocent at one one level, but it, uh, underneath it can be because we don't want to to cope with disappointment, loneliness, alienation, failure, loss, degeneration. Just even the words are depressing, aren't they? We don't want to be with them, so move town, get a hairdo, paint your nails. <laughs> Taranio was having a moral dilemma about uh, she had a very wonderful toenail job just before this retreat, and she was... <laughs> She was in a moral dilemma about the eighth precept, uh, the seventh precept about whether she should unpaint her toenails or not. So I left it to her to decide. You know, she puts on socks. Very easy. This is the middle way. (laughs) This is wisdom at work. I noticed that actually. So, you know, if we're unwise, we just go for the next hit. Okay, well, that didn't work out. That job didn't work out. That, that relationship didn't work out. That hair color didn't work out. The monastery didn't work out. The goat, the goat flock didn't work out. Savitri's getting really tiresome. Yeah. Maybe I'll try Arjun. <laughs> so we just go to the next one. Yeah, this is great. Now this is it. New town, new career, new face, new job, new name. New teacher. I'll go to the monastic retreat. Yes! <laughs> Get some devotion into my life. That's what I need. Something new, something different. And so, whoosh, up we, you know, springtime comes and we, we, we're there on the upswing. Yeah, great, this is marvelous. And then as it turns and it gets a bit old and you've heard those um, Ajahn Amaro's jokes 843,000 times, Oh God, same old thing. Yo so Arahansama. Oh God. Not that again. Sokapari Deva Dukkha Domana Supayasa. So round and around we go. This is the cycle of of addiction the cycle of compulsive identification, being born again, born into a hope and then left with disappointment, born into an enthusiasm and left with despair. And there's not being nihilistic, this is just how how it functions. So then the the Buddha uh, again pointed to different ways that we can work with this. And uh, as I was just mentioning, you know, if, if you hit the Sokaparideva, Dukkha Domanasu Payasa patch, then even then, even when we're right in the middle of suffering, the, the Buddha pointed out, you know, if we, there's, suffering can ripen in two ways. Either in further suffering, you keep going around the, 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 the wheel, or it can ripen in search. And search means that in us which says there's got to be a, a way out of this. I don't have to be stuck on booze or cigarettes or relationships or meditation techniques or the latest guru. There must be a way to transcend this. That's faith arises. There's got to be a way out. And then that leads to the development of, uh, of, you know, of, uh, of uh, 
concentration and insight and eventually liberation. But you can catch it earlier down the cycle, just as I was describing with with um, the the uh, propuncture process. You know, if we catch it down at the realm of of perception and feeling, just at the uh, in that in that instance, it was at the you know, sanya, uh, the contact pasa, vedana sanya, vitaka. You catch it down there, then you can you can stop it before it launches. So in the cycle of dependent origination, what's talked about is the the weak link is that between feeling and craving. Feeling is like standing on the platform. Craving is you 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 climbed on the train and the train has started moving. If you try and get out at the level of you know, clinging, then the train's moving, but it hasn't left the station yet. You try to get out at becoming, and uh, you know, you're already out of the station and, and under full steam. So if you hop off then, you're going to get really tangled up, mashed up on the, on the tracks. But uh, to, to break the cycle between feeling and craving, it's like, I really like that. That's beautiful. Yes, I like it but I don't have to have it. That's so awful. That's really ugly. Yes, but I don't have to destroy it, hate it. It's really ugly, repulsive. There it is. Some things in life are like that. Which doesn't mean to say that we're totally passive. We're just sort of turning ourselves into a sort of inert putty or doing the potato meditation, taking that a bit too seriously, sort of the, the zafu potato rather than the couch potato. <laughs> feeling, feeling. <laughs> we can, uh, it doesn't mean that we're unresponsive to life, but we're, we're, we're learning how to be non-reactive. To be non-responsive means we're, we're kind of uh, unconscious or dead to the world, but it's the, it's not the uh, trying to be unresponsive or not taking initiative or acting in life, but it's more to do with not reacting blindly, so that I like I got to have I want, and we immediately pursue. Wow, it's beautiful! I got to have it. More of that's great, and we're just swept up by the the promise of a of an object or a thought or a feeling or a mood, or or, or similarly aversive. That's terrible. That's bad. Get rid of it. Hate. You know, we should hate that. That's reactivity. To respond is, oh, well, I really like that. Now, does that belong to somebody else? Or is it appropriate? Can I afford it? Do I really need it? Let's feel that out. Well, it's beautiful, and it's lovely, and I'd like to have it, but it's too expensive. (laughs) Okay? more money comes along, fine. If it doesn't, oh, fine too. So you're not suppressing desire. You're not suppressing the fact that you like things or dislike things. But you're no longer being dragged around by that. So there's uh, uh, a response. Uh, and the way to relate relating to the world is coming from uh, an environment of wisdom and mindfulness. It's informing uh, the senses, informing the realm of like, dislike, and neutral feeling. So then uh, if there's something that we can do or something to, to, to acquire and get then, and that's appropriate, fine, we go out and do it and get it and have it and enjoy it. But if there's nothing to do or uh, nothing to get or, 
<coughs> there's no uh, need to follow that, and we can leave it alone, and nothing is missing. There's no gap in our life because we didn't pursue that object. Similarly, there's no imposition in our life if there's something painful or difficult that uh, we can't get rid of. Okay, here it is. No need to argue with it or contend against it. Like Dandapani in the forest. The Buddha saying, you know, I teach the path of, I practice the path of non-contention with anyone or anything. So this is uh, 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 one of the, the most beautiful and, and precious results of, of practicing Dhamma and developing the meditation. Learning to, to recognize that bridge, the, the, the crossing point between feeling and craving, Vedana and Tanha. And that's the place where we have a choice. To learn we have a choice there. And to train the heart to, to make that choice. And to to learn how to leave things alone and to and then we see for ourselves how much more spacious and, and beautiful life is how uh, easeful life can be with the presence of the liked and the disliked and, and the whole array we find uh, we can really be at home in the world without being pressured or entangled within it so I offer these thoughts for consideration this evening I knew it was out there somewhere.